Welcome back to the show where we turn market madness into musings. Uh, this week we're going to be covering Mexico's issuance of 50-year Formosa bonds. We're also going to be talking about how big tech has recently banned Trump from using a lot of social media. And we're also going to be covering the recent price run-up in Bitcoin's uh, essentially kind of looking at the supply-demand fundamentals, which may have caused this price run-up, other than the kind of craze that we have seen over the past year, really, since the crash. It's, I think, increased from five to 40,000 peak US dollars recently. So it's increased eightfold. Um, nevertheless, it did recently drop. But nonetheless, we're going to kick off with uh, Mexico's issuance of 50-year Formosa bonds. So essentially, the government had issued has issued its first Formosa bond. Uh, the Formosa refers to foreign currency bonds which are issued in Taiwan. So essentially any bonds that may be issued in another currency other than the Taiwanese dollar, I think it is. And the offering was of 50-year notes in US dollars on the Taiwanese market, of course. And it ended up raising 3 billion US dollars at a coupon rate of 3.75%. So a bond's coupon rate is the rate of interest that it pays annually, meaning that these bonds are going to be paying 3.75% um, annually uh, for 50 years, while its yield is the rate of return it generates. It's not exactly the same. Nevertheless, it does point to a high potential uh, yield, much higher than what we see now. And I think, especially from the point of view of ins um, institutional investors, uh, whoever owns these bonds, it wasn't as much as an investment in terms of kind of... Um, anything to do with the balance sheet as much as it was a way of securing yield and satisfying year-to-year -year liquidity constraints, right? Looking more at the cash flow, uh, any kind of commitments that has to pay out, especially classical example being pension funds uh, really require yield to function in terms of them paying out the monthly, quarterly, uh, essentially pensions on an annual rate uh, for which ideally they would like some yield. But if you look at US treasuries, for example, uh, especially the short-term uh, bills, then you will not find much yield there. And it's problematic for these institutions. Uh, nevertheless, yeah, as opposed to kind of other bonds, you know, like I said, the US treasuries, uh, when yields fall to near zero levels, the instrument, the, these bonds only offer returns in terms of capital gains and uh, asset price appreciation, which again, isn't ideal, for example, pension funds who uh, don't want to necessarily see their balance sheet grow as much as they do want it to be uh, cash flow generating in terms of uh, yield from bonds, for example, because what happens if they have uh, to rely on capital gains and asset price appreciation is that, okay, these bonds appreciate, appreciate, but then to make their payments and to give out the pensions, then they have to sell these bonds. And it's problematic for uh, other bondholders or especially those who issue these bonds when obviously bonds get sold, their price falls, or, um, you know, especially depending on how tight these commitments of these pension funds or institutional investors may be they have to, they might have to offload a lot of the balance sheet in terms of u.s treasuries um it can be problematic for the prices and therefore yields and cost of financing for the u.s government for example also little known fact i think uh, and i could do a bigger episode or bigger analysis on this is that in times of great economic growth and uh, monetary ease uh, monetary easing sorry you get essentially a faded view of what money is. So initially, uh, the kind of most hard money, at the inelastic, not inelastic, but tightest, the, the realest money, let's say, the ultimate money, quote-unquote, is gold. Um, at the end of the day, or at least it was, uh, especially in the 20th century, with the gold standard. Uh, then you also have currency, which is, uh, to a certain extent, 
the promise to pay gold, but then you also have uh, US treasuries, which is the promise to pay currency. And as you can see, when times get easier, quote unquote, when uh, you can really give more trust to, for example, US treasuries because of economic growth, this, that, and the other, that gets used as money, quote unquote, or, you know, currency, because banks actually settle their payments with US treasuries. If one bank owes another bank something um, because of some transactions made, they can pay each other in US treasuries. So it paints you an interesting picture of what money is and what happens to that quote-unquote money when there's an economic crash and yields rise, these prices fall of these bonds and all of a sudden the money that you used to settle payments before isn't worth as much as it was. Uh, anyways, it's a big problem and um, interesting to see that essentially there... Oh, actually what I was going to say also is that the finance ministry said that this issuance was more than three times oversubscribed, right? So there's a big demand, big, big demand uh, for these kind of assets, which provide yield or coupons at least, right? The, the finance ministry also said that it drew interest from uh, 210 international institutional investors. And um, it also attracted 10 new investors, mostly Taiwanese insurers with long-term investment portfolios, right? So it may also, like to a certain extent, whether or not Mexico pays you 50 years down the line isn't as important as you meeting your year-to-year -year liquidity requirements <clears throat> over the next 50 years. If this in any way helps the institutional investors at least partially offset the problems of finding yield elsewhere in more traditional quote-unquote secure places and markets like the US Treasuries. Nevertheless, the transaction for Mexico covered 35% of the foreign currency funding requirements for Mexico's 2021 budget and um, essentially helps them ease the pain of um, the coronavirus in and of itself, as well as other debt requirements, uh, which they have had because it's a highly indebted nation, I believe, or at least it's had a history of um, <clears throat> sovereign uh, default or sovereign debt problems, at least. Nevertheless, these bonds are uh, to be issued this January, so this month, and mature in April 2071, with interest payments beginning in April 2021 and occurring each April and October. But you know, the other question kind of remains is, are these payments guaranteed? Because again, uh, people search for yield and liquidity and this kind of cash flow uh, aspect of the, of the bonds. But is Mexico going to be able to guarantee these payments? Because 3.75% coupon rate for 50 years sounds great on paper. Nonetheless, uh, what is the security behind it, right? What, what is the security of these payments? So Mexico actually in November completed a debt refinancing operation worth 6.6 .6 billion US dollars in international markets, including a heavily oversubscribed bond offer. So there is definite demand in the market for this. Uh, investors seeking higher coupons and yield, albeit for, you know, higher risks turning from US treasuries or uh, German bonds or other European bonds um, for a bit because of the QE. I also wrote an article, Frankfurt Stein's Monster, on the on how bond markets, especially the German and Italian bond markets, uh, sovereign bond markets, are essentially capitulating to uh, QE, to European, uh, the, the, the monetary policy of the European Central Bank. So, you know, investors to seek yield and coupons are turning elsewhere, albeit again for higher risk. Uh, nevertheless, last year, Latin America's second largest economy, Mexico, was moving closer to uh, losing its investment grade, uh, investment grade credit rating amid obviously the concerns of the impact um, of the coronavirus pandemic on its economy. So that there's obviously been credit rating problems, as has been with most other firms and countries really. 
Um, and also another thing which may kind of inhibit the Mexico's ability to make these payments is the debt of national oil company Petroleos Mexicanos, aka Pemex, uh, which has also been weighing heavily on its sovereign credit rating and therefore the yield at which it has to, um, or essentially the cost of financing for the country uh, or refinancing for the country, which may again inhibit future payments and repayments and this, that and the other uh, interest payments. However, in recent weeks, um, there's been two ratings agencies which affirmed their assessments of the Mexican sovereign uh, credit rating. Therefore, for now, we may assume that whoever is in hold of these bonds is in enough safety to guarantee these interest payments over the foreseeable future, whatever that may be. Uh, the next story today I'm going to be talking about is how Big Tech has recently been banning Trump on uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter. There's been a big, um, a bigger than people realize amount of social media is actually uh, banning him. And obviously Twitter calls it a permanent suspension, which is just an elongated way of saying it's a ban, uh, but sounds a lot smoother on the tongue. Uh, but of course, this is, I think, another example. Okay, politics aside of what's happened at the US Capitol, did this, you know... That, that's a whole different other story. Uh, we see another example of authorities and companies or uh, institutions with power not letting a good crisis go to waste. Because regardless of your politics, it was hard to um, disassociate Trump from the political power that he yields still. On Twitter, he had, I think, 89 million followers, right? That is bigger than the population of many countries. And well, obviously, these were very active followers in terms of... Um, the extremes they'd go to to uh, essentially follow their leader. But the, the problem that we see here with big tech banning Trump on its social media is the question that it then yields in terms of will this be further exploited by enemies of free speech around the world, right? Freedom of speech. Um, I think it's fair to agree that everyone believes that inciting hatred and violence uh, should be punishable. But I think the problem here is uh, is who governs those limitations, right? Is it uh, big tech and companies and kind of this digital oligarchy, as we've heard them uh, being called recently by, I think, Angela Merkel and uh, Macron, which which gave out these kind of statements talking about, again, it's, it's not about uh, whether we should punish or not hatred and violence and uh, whatever is being said. It's not about judging that. It's about essentially who gets to judge that and who gets to govern that. Uh, which is the main problem in this situation, because here I think we see each other in a slippery kind of slope um, because it's outrage and a lot of problems with what big tech has done recently. But is there going to be any action? And if there isn't going to be any disciplinary action against big tech now, well, then it's only going to pave the way for more of the same, if not more of more of the same uh, in the future. Right. It's a big problem. And I think the irony of this situation is that Trump for a long time has called the uh, left-wing media, has called the uh, essentially social medias as well, the enemies of free speech and how they promote censorship. And is that any other? And there's been a conversation of that. And he's been called a right-wing lunatic, this, that, and the other. And he's been calling the left-wing media and social medias, all of these, like I said, how they're promoting censorship and essentially censoring the right-wing. This situation has, to his followers at least, uh, to some people kind of proved him right because he has been censored, censored, he has been banned. And I think this gives him a ground to uh, become more radical in the future in terms of potentially building. I mean, there's been talk of him building the Trump News Network. Um, that's going to be insane, right? But I guess we'll see how the stock market or the public mar capital markets will treat Twitter, for example, for banning uh, Trump. 
I believe that its stock actually took a 79% hit on the day that the news came out. Uh, nevertheless, aside from that, I don't know what kind of repercussions we will see, if any. But it's a very interesting inflection point. I think that we'll look back on in the, in the future, be it 1, 2, 5, 20 years, um, which if, isn't, if, the, if we don't deal with it now, I think it'll be, well, at the very least problematic. Um, but it's an interesting story nonetheless. It's gotten a lot of heat, and uh, we'll see how this develop. How would how this will develop? Because I think there's going to be much more to the situation than what's been happening now. Uh, nevertheless, like I said, Trump on Twitter had 89 million followers. Um, that's a lot of people. Nevertheless, uh, next story is about Bitcoin. So March of 2020, it was I think uh, like I mentioned around 5,000 US dollars. Now it peaked um, beginning of January, mid-January. No, yeah, beginning of January, first week of January at around 40,000 US dollars. And it kind of feels like the te like a Tesla with no actual cars, you know, to some people who might not understand it. But um, people have been comparing it to gold, have calling it uh, digi digital gold. That's kind of their hedge thesis, you know, to hedge against the system, against inflation, this, that, the other, this, that, and the other. We have to invest in digital gold and... You know, I think it's important then to compare with actual gold uh, before calling it digital gold, because I think, um, you know, if you believe that inflation is coming, as the central banks have been very adamant about, uh, and it therefore it probably is, uh, you really want to hold a real asset that can hedge against it. If that is your actual thesis, right? One that can't be inflated away or one that can't be uh, thrown down the gutter by currency uh, debasement and relentless money creation, as we're seeing. Uh, promoted by central banks, but I think the price run-up we see now, it could be more of a supply-demand issue as opposed to people finally realizing it's digital digital gold, um, or whatever this new paradigm shift may be. Maybe it is. Who knows? I have no idea. I just uh, I just see a lot of madness. I'm trying to kind of add some sense into it. But the argument for it being a supply and demand issue is that obviously we know that the supply of Bitcoins is inelastic in terms of it being final at 21 million, I think, Bitcoins in the end is how much we're going to have after it's mined or this whole system, a mechanism of Bitcoin and how it works. Uh, nevertheless, there are really like a few large whales which own uh, a large stake of the outstanding Bitcoin. And these are like the Winklevoss twins. And there are some kind of other big names in the in the game. Uh, nevertheless, they don't need to sell the Bitcoin or the, they don't at least need to tr actively trade Bitcoin to fund their livelihoods, right? So there is a lot of bit or there is an inelastic supply of Bitcoin with uh, a certain chunk of it actually just being held in wallets. So uh, the actual, uh, let's say, daily, vo daily volume of, of Bitcoin that can be traded is not the actual supply of Bitcoin currently in the market, right? So that there is a kind of supply issue there on, on the one side. Right. So uh, these people, uh, these, these, let's say, few large whales can sell the story, can promote it, this, this, that and the other, and their wealth grows. Right. They don't need to then sell it to realize their gains because, well, they can huddle, uh, as, as it said. And as such, we have institutions now kind of looking to invest and uh, retail investors uh, definitely experience some. Sorry, let me rephrase. <clears throat> as such, we now have institutions now kind of looking to invest in this as, you know, a serious cryptocurrency asset in their portfolio. And obviously retail investors now kind of experiencing some uh, FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. Like you see this Bitcoin, I mean, you see headlines of it every day. And if you by accident invested in it over a few weeks ago, you, you could have made a lot of money and it's serious money, right? And it doesn't seem like, especially when you look at the 2017 peak, 
not something that happens often, well, you know, let's say once every three years, um, and it's unlike anything we've seen uh, before, uh, especially from people in my generation, I'm 21 years old, there's not many assets like this who have just spiked like this insanely and that you I could have you know paid off my uh, university tuition with this that and the other uh, unless we're also talking about Tesla or Apple's also been good whatever uh, nevertheless these retail investors and institutional investors are now buying in an, in an environment of limited float right because of these large whales and essentially, as the press writes more about it, there's more market mania, there's more news, this, that, and the other, the price continues to rise. And people essentially begin to believe the kind of hedge thesis, especially since the price is rising and the news are being written about it at this time. And so more investors may come in and the price may go up even higher. And again, because of this kind of more limited flow that we may assume, the price shoots up uh, insanely as it has. But at the same time, because of its great liquidity and divisibility, it may fall the way it did, I think, 20% the other day or over the past few days. So it's an insane asset. And I think it will make for a lot of interesting case studies and kind of look backs in the future. Uh, it will surely be a wild ride. But uh, that is it for today. Those are some of the stories that I covered the Mexico's issuance of the 50-year bonds, uh, big tech banning Trump, or, you know, suspending him permanently, and uh, the Bitcoin's price run-up over the past um, seven months or nine months, sorry. So I hope you have enjoyed. Again, I invite you to my blog, investingintellect.com, where I recently talked about um, Frankfurt Stein's monsters, that is uh, essentially corporate and sovereign bonds and European monetary policy in the Eurozone. Very interesting stuff, scary as well. Um, but for that, uh, for listening, thank you. And I wish you a great day. Bye-bye.